But I think that in, in today's environment, in a way, you know, although we have technology, which it makes it so much easier to communicate with people around the world, it is almost in a sense a return to how policy and diplomacy was conducted long ago when it wasn't possible to take a plane to visit someone and have a meeting in person. Instead, you had to wait you know, weeks for a letter to arrive or to you know, send a telegram. And it, so it is in a sense a, a return to how diplomacy used to be, even with this technological overlay on top of it. Welcome to Flashpoint. I'm your host, Andrew Holland. This week's podcast is with ASP adjunct fellow Catherine Katz about her new book, Daughters of Yalta which tells the story of the momentous conference in early 1945 through the eyes of Sarah Churchill, Anna Roosevelt, and Kathleen Harriman. You know, history is often told through power, trends, and real politics, but at certain hinge points, the personal can be more important than the power. I think nobody exemplifies this more than Winston Churchill when he personally willed the British through the early years fighting alone against Hitler's Germany. By Yalta, though, in 1945, Britain was bankrupt and exhausted, while the superpowers of the United States and the Soviet Union were emerging as the centers of global power. The book and our conversation shows how the importance and limits of personal relationships and diplomacy. It's a new look at a pivotal point in world history, and there's lessons for today as well. I hope you enjoy our conversation, and I'd encourage you to pick up the book. Catherine Katz, welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much for having me. So you've just uh, published a book, The Daughters of Yalta, The Churchills, Roosevelt's, and Harriman's a Story of Love and War. What made you write this book? This book is really the product of a number of different threads in my life that all came together in you know, one moment. And it was something that I feel is uh, very serendipitous, kind of one of those moments in life where things you don't realize are connected turn out to be. I had always loved history since I was a little kid. I grew up on movies like The Sound of Music and The Great Escape and White Christmas and you know, always had this interest in World War II. Loved hearing my grandfather's stories of his experience in the Navy during the war and was kind of the, the family self-appointed historian uh, trying to capture his memories. And so history was something that I always loved and because of you know, the personal connections in my family, especially World War II. I majored in history as an undergrad at Harvard. I also did a history master's at Cambridge. And uh, in, for both of those experiences for my thesis and dissertation, I somewhat unintentionally uh, and serendipitously ended up studying Churchill to a large degree, however, not during the Second World War. I was looking at Churchill, his uh, experience escaping from a Boer POW camp as a young man uh, during the Cold War, uh, which rocketed him to fame and jumpstarted his political career. And then for my dissertation was looking at Churchill's influence on the origins of modern counterintelligence practices uh, during his time as Home Secretary during the First World War. And so after I graduated, I did what I thought was a sensible thing to do at the time. Like many people, I decided to give finance a go. So I moved back from England in the pastoral fields with cows grazing and afternoon tea and went <laughs> to Manhattan, but very, uh, again, serendipitously in the lobby of my office was a bookstore and it was called Chartwell Booksellers and it was named after Winston Churchill's country home. And this course, bookstore yeah. 
it specialized in books by and about Winston Churchill. <laughs> it just was uh, such a crazy coincidence that right in the middle of Manhattan is this bookstore. And so on days when I needed a break from Excel modeling, go down and get a coffee, stop into the bookstore, and I got to know the owner. And before long, he suggested that I should meet the International Churchill Society, which is made up of academics and professionals who want to encourage the study of history and to encourage young people to go into public leadership, but also members of the Churchill family. And it was around this time that they were opening the archive and the papers of Winston's middle daughter, Sarah, to outside researchers. And they asked if I would be interested in writing an article about her papers for their publication. And very coincidentally, I had had kind of a, a passing experience with Sarah Churchill since the time I was little. She was an actress and many people know her for her role uh, in a movie called Royal Wedding where she starred opposite Fred Astaire in 1951. But I knew her because every summer since I was very young, my family has gone to the cloister at Sea Island, Georgia. And there on the wall is a picture of Sarah Churchill on her wedding day in 1949. And I had uh, walked past this picture so many times. And so when they asked me to write this article, memories of seeing this photograph since I was a baby came to mind and I knew this was something that I wanted to do. And it was kind of one of those moments where it feels like you know, fate steps in and <laughs> it takes a hand in your life to have all these coincidences collide in uh, one project. So you focus in this book, Sarah Churchill at the center, but then also <laughs> Kathleen Harriman, the daughter of Avril Harriman, who was the ambassador to the Soviet Union at the time, and Anna Roosevelt, who was FDR's daughter. How was their relationship? Did, did they have a personal relationship prior to meeting in Yalta, or was this something that just came at the time? So when I started this project, I initially thought it was going to be just a, a biography of Sarah Churchill, but the more I came to learn about her and her life, I became fascinated with her experience during World War II when she served as a member of the Women's Auxiliary Air Force, uh, the women's branch of the Royal Air Force, and she was an aerial reconnaissance intelligence analyst. But the other thing that I was so interested in was, despite the fact I'd studied World War II many times in school, especially the Tehran and Yalta conferences, I had no idea that Sarah Churchill had been her father's chosen aide at both of those conferences, and that uh, having seen how useful and valuable she was to her father at Tehran, that FDR and April Harriman were then inspired to bring their daughters to Yalta as their aides. Remarkable, if they, they're mentioned in other histories, it's just kind of a footnote and passing a light aside. But I was really intrigued by these women and their role there, but also their relationships among, you know, together. Sarah Churchill and Kathleen Harriman did know each other prior to Yalta because Kathleen had moved to London as a war reporter during the Blitz when her father became the Lend-Lease envoy to uh, Britain prior to the American entry into World War II. And the Harriman and Churchill families were extremely close. They were celebrating Kathleen's birthday, her 24th birthday on December 7th, 1941 mm. with the Churchills the night that they found out about uh, Pearl Harbor. And so the Churchills and the Harrimans had experienced some of these momentous occasions of the war together already prior to Yalta. And Anna Roosevelt, however, uh, she did not know the other two women. They all knew of each other. Sarah Churchill had met Eleanor Roosevelt when she came to London earlier in the war. But Anna was very intrigued by meeting the other two daughters as they were intrigued about meeting her. Kathleen's father, Averill, had met Anna on occasions when he returned from Mas Moscow to Washington, D.C. to brief President Roosevelt and you know, to have meetings about, you know, as one does when you're the ambassador. 
Um, so he knew her and had told Kathleen a good bit about her. So it was an opportunity for these three women to kind of have this shared experience and having had uh, occupied similar roles in their father's lives, but to do it all together in the same place. Yeah. So Yalta was famously one of the most consequential meetings, maybe in world history. It was, it was where the big three, so Stalin, Roosevelt, and Churchill met to, to talk about what the world's future would look like. They laid out where, you know, influence throughout Europe, you know, famously questions about who would have influence over Poland and Eastern Europe came up, as well as future plans for United Nations, uh, what would happen in China and with the war in Asia. How does personal relationships how were they influenced in Yalta? How did these personal relationships that, that these women helped build and personal diplomacy, what was the influence there? I firmly believe that the political and the personal are inextricably intertwined. And that's true at the highest heights and the, the summits of history. Even though we think of these great men of history kind of in capital letters and we put them on a pedestal and we think of Yalta as this great moment in di diplomatic history, which it is, but it is, very informed by the personal and the relationships between the people who are participating. On the one hand, we have these relationships between fathers and daughters, which is something that we haven't really taken the time to appreciate or understand before. And the three women at Yalta are occupying this unique position where they're, they're in a quasi-official capacity. They're members of the delegation, but they don't necessarily speak for their government. But because they are their father's daughters, they can speak on behalf of their fathers and their words carry weight and are taken extremely seriously. They can deliver nuanced messages and gather information in a, a less official way to mm -hmm. impart what their fathers need to share or information they need to collect, but not in a way that puts a, their government in an uncomfortable position. But the other thing that is really interesting seeing through the lens of these daughters is you realize just how tense the relationships were among the big three at this time. Right. Churchill and Roosevelt had a very close relationship through the whole war, and they still do at this time. But the reality of the power dynamics have shifted. The British Empire is significantly weaker now than they were at the beginning of the war. The Soviets have firm control of Eastern Europe, the Red Army, boots on the ground across Eastern Europe. Stalin is in a position where Churchill and FDR need him a lot more than he needs them and he's willing to exploit this, but FDR also recognizes the power that the Americans have, which is significantly greater than the British at this time. And so Sarah Churchill, who had been with her father at Tehran in 1943, and then again at Yalta in 1945, can see how the relationship between her father and FDR has broken down. And she asks at the beginning, when she first sees him, she recognizes something about him has changed, and she's wondering if it is because he's in poor health which unbeknownst to her, he is, yeah. uh, or if the Americans have moved away from the British. And so it's very heartbreaking for Sarah as her father's daughter to see this warm relationship that Churchill and Roosevelt have had for so many years beginning to fray just as victory is in sight. Right. And so, so famously, both Churchill and Roosevelt built this pretty intense personal relationship. Churchill stayed at the White House for a month in 1941 after, after Pearl Harbor over Christmas, like you said earlier. And it was a, a close personal relationship built on personal ties and common history, shared language, all that sort of stuff. 
Stalin doesn't have that. And, and it, it's important to note, I think, that there probably wasn't a family member of Stalin's that you could have written a book about as well. And, and Stalin is a, a different sort of character than both of them and uses more realpolitik, even though both Winston and uh, Franklin really try to build this personal re relationship with him. Even, you know, you read some about Franklin putting down Winston in front of, in front of him to Stalin and all this sort of stuff. Is there a, a lesson there for us even today about how to deal with Russian leaders and, you know, the, the difference between personal politics and real politics? So FDR firmly believed that he and Stalin had a very close personal relationship. And FDR was a firm believer in the, the power of touchy-feely politics, as he called it, and forming right. these strong personal bonds. And he did believe that if he and Stalin could form this connection, that it would result in a breakthrough in international relations and bring the Soviets into the international community in the post-war period. And he was desperate to make this happen. He felt that he should interact with Stalin directly. He tried to minimize the contact that the State Department had with Stalin in these negotiations. He brought very few people from the State Department with him because he thought that they would get in the way. He and Harry Hopkins kind of referred to the State Department at times as uh, nannies and cookie pushers, which is not very generous. And at least not the deep state, though. <laughs> <laughs> And the other thing that was surprising at this time was how few Soviet experts there were working in the State Department. Um, yeah. And you do see a very young Chip Bolin, who's there in the capacity as an interpreter, and George Kennan, who is the number two at uh, the embassy in Moscow, working with April Harriman, communicating about the state of the relationship between the uh, Americans and the Soviets and how to handle this. George Kennan is writing to Chip Bolin saying, we should just carve the world up into spheres of influence now and call it a day because this conference is not going to lead to any breakthroughs. Chip Bolin thinks you know, this as the uh, strongest democracy in the world, there's at least an obligation to try. And so you can see their you know, early thought process kind of, and then how it develops later um, as they you know, become the wise men of the Cold War. However, what's very interesting is early, uh, before the conference, the Secretary of State, Edward Stettinius, who had just become the Secretary of State two months prior to Yalta, writes to the embassy, uh, the American embassy in Moscow and asks for whatever personal information that they can glean about the Soviet officials and uh, especially the, not, you know, Stalin, Vyacheslav Molotov, the foreign minister, kind of the, they, they know a little bit about them, but some of the more kind of career diplomats in hopes of bridging personal connections. And George Kennan writes back and says, I wish I could give you this information. However, we don't have any. The only personal information the Soviets allow is in obituaries when it can be of no use to anyone. And the idea that you can form a personal relationship and build foreign policy on this basis with the Soviets is something that they don't believe in. Perhaps in the case of Stalin, it could be meaningful. And I do believe that Stalin appreciated and enjoyed Franklin Roosevelt and respected him for overcoming his paralysis and being such a strong and respected leader in the eyes of the American public, kind of respecting his you know, strength, respect strength. Yeah. But, you know, even then, the Soviet Union is not going to act contrary to the interests of their nation just because Stalin personally likes Roosevelt. And I think that this is something that Roosevelt had counted on being more important in this relationship. And I do think that this attempt to build a personal connection with the Soviet or Russian leader, which is something that American presidents have pursued you know, in the last 75 years, most recently with the Bush, Obama, and current Trump administration, albeit the latter in a slightly different way, 
Yeah. It just doesn't result in this breakthrough that we're looking for. And so perhaps we should go back to some of this early thinking before Yalta and think about why this works and is it, you know, what George Kennan said at the time true and does that still hold? And I think that there's a lot to be gleaned from that. Yeah, George Kennan's uh, writings about Russia clearly show that there's a continuity to, to Russian policy and Russian security interests throughout their history. You know, they need to have buffer states. They need to feel secure from European states, all, all this sort of stuff. It, it is really interesting. And it's interesting to read in your book how there's this difference in sort of perception of what security would be in the future world, you know, with Churchill and Franklin kind of thinking more about a shared security, a United Nations, the beginnings of the idea of, you know, a global community, whereas Stalin really thinking about security for Russia, security for the, the, the communist revolution and, and, you know, setting up what would become, you know, the Eastern European buffer states and all that sort of. Exactly. Stalin, his mentality is not that different than the czars who came before him. There's been this paranoia for centuries about maintaining security on the borders, especially in the corridor through Poland, where you have these flatlands where they've been open to attack in the past since the time of Napoleon. And they're determined that this will not happen again. And they want to make sure that the governments surrounding them are friendly to the interests in Moscow. And uh, this is, of course, you know, tragic for the Poles, and you know, they suffer for the next 50 years because of this. Yeah. FDR especially believes that you know, forming this community of nations, this peace organization, the United Nations, will transcend local geopolitical disputes and issues. Churchill's less convinced, but he's not in as strong a position as FDR to advocate for this. And so I think FDR discounts the reality of the tension between the Soviet Union and Poland at the time and believes that this community of United Nations can solve these problems and transcend any kind of local politics, which is unfortunate, and especially for the people who then had to suffer the consequences for the next half century. Yeah. Let's fast forward to, to 2020. Here we are in the middle of, of the coronavirus. You talk about the importance of personal relationships and having a ability to go beyond diplomatic protocol and, and build those relationships. But how can people do that? How can diplomats do that this year? You know, UN General Assembly was canceled and went all virtual this year. It's hard, if not impossible, to actually build those relationships over Zoom, like you and I are talking right now. You know, how, how, how do you build that in, in the 21st century? Or, or do we just have to, you know, hope we get through this and, and move on to the, to the uh, move back to, to the old way? Well, it's first, it's very unfortunate, especially this year that the United Nations General Assembly had to be held remotely. I think the 75th anniversary is a significant milestone. At the end of Yalta, Roosevelt didn't believe that he could guarantee lasting peace with something like the United Nations, you know, an eternal peace. But he did feel it was important to maintain peace for 50 years, especially in Europe after two world wars. And of course, there have been conflicts since then. But I think the overarching goal of avoiding a world war is one that has been achieved and surpassed his expectations perhaps in 50 years. So um, you know, it would have been a significant milestone to celebrate in person. Yeah. But I think that in, in today's environment, in a way, you know, although we have technology, which is, makes it so much easier to communicate with people around the world, it is almost in a sense a return to how policy and diplomacy was conducted 
long ago when it wasn't possible to take a plane to visit someone and have a meeting in person. Instead, you had to wait you know, weeks for a letter to arrive or to you know, send a telegram. And it, so it is, in a sense, a, a return to how diplomacy used to be, even with this technological overlay on top of it. And you can, you know, it's funny to think about technology really being more reflective of the way people communicated in the past when they could you know, only pick up the phone or only you know, send a cable. And so in a way, kind of this luxury of having face-to-face -face interpersonal meetings over the last couple of decades is one that's an aberration uh, in history, yeah, I guess but also that's one that I hope that we can return to soon because I really do think meeting in person, especially when you're able to put leaders in a room together, it can expedite processes and also building these personal bonds while it may not be successful in the case of trying to build a personal relationship with the Russian leader. It, I, I do think that in other cases, it, it's of course, getting to know someone, even getting to know an enemy can be enlightening. And when you can have those kind of face-to-face -face interactions, it does build a sense of community and closeness that makes you realize the world is not as far apart as you think it might be. I think that's, that's a really important lesson. You know, uh, I had I had the opportunity to hear from uh, Samantha Power recently, and she, she said that one of the, the things that she really worked on when she was the U.S. ambassador to the United Nations was to meet all of her other counterparts in a meeting. And for many of them, she said that they had never actually met the American ambassador face to face. You know, you think about 191 countries around the world. A lot of them are quite small and, you know, relatively unimportant to the United States. And just to have that personal touch, you know, it's not going to override great power concerns or real politics, but it can help smooth the way for, for certain things. And, and it's one of those things of, of why not, right? So, and, I, and I think the, the relationship between Churchill and Roosevelt during the war is a perfect example of how when leaders can meet with each other, of course, it's in the interest of their two nations to cooperate, but the kind of the good faith and the creativity also that comes from being able to speak with someone and kind of discuss ideas together, it can expedite processes, it can make you think about problems in a new way. And I think especially for something like the United Nations, it's not only been successful in avoiding a world war, but it does give the countries around the world an opportunity to have their leaders and their diplomats meet face to face. But it really wouldn't be possible otherwise. You, know, you can't spend the entire year traveling around the world, meeting yeah. with leaders from every nation separately. So to have a venue where everybody can come together is uh, one of the wonderful legacies that emerged out of this period in history. Yeah. Yeah. You know, some of us, uh, I, I worked on staff in the Senate and there was always kind of this fear that the boss, the senator would go and meet one of his counterparts and start talking about something. And you never know what it was going to be and where it would lead, you know, and of course, staff and I'm sure State Department and, and diplo diplomatic foreign ministries around the world always kind of want to keep it at that staff to staff level. Because you, you kind of don't know what's going to happen when, uh, you know, the personal relationship builds up. And it is an interesting sort of thing that it takes away some of the control that staff has. But of course, that's the way it should be probably with principles, right? Yeah, I, I think you don't necessarily want the principal freelancing all the time. You, know, you want the staff to be informed and able to support the mission. And, you know, even if the principal does take a different route than perhaps the staff had anticipated, 
you want them to be informed about those discussions and to be part of the conversation, even if they're not the ones leading it. I think the words and ideas that come out of a principal are often the product of many people's time and influence and thought, and it's, it really is you know, a, a group effort. It's, it's, yeah. it's supposed to be, yes. It is interesting, though, to see some of the other parallels between the last few years and the Yalta period. You know, FDR did really believe in his own powers to communicate with world leaders, and in the case of Churchill, it was extremely successful. Yeah. Stalin, less so, and you do see moments where FDR is reluctant to involve his State Department in the meetings with Stalin because he fears that they will hamper this breakthrough that he's looking for. He meets with Stalin at the beginning of the Yalta conference alone with only his interpreter present, no one from State Department there. And you've seen the, the difficulties that have emerged in recent times when the current president has met alone with the Russian, with, with Putin, yeah. um, with only an interpreter. And so it's difficult then for the staff in the State Department and the regional experts to know how to react when they don't know the full details of those meetings. So yes, we should absolutely have personal lines of communications between the principals. It shouldn't, it shouldn't and doesn't have to be at the expense of you know, leaving the staff out of the conversation. Right, right. It, it's, a, it's about being a part of the team as opposed to thinking about this as an individual to an individual relationship. Really important. Well, Catherine, where, where can people find out more about the book? How, how can they buy it? Yes, uh, the, the Daughters of the Alta is available you know, wherever book sold. Um, it's available at your favorite local independent bookstore. You can get it on Amazon. It's available also in uh, a Kindle version and an audio version. And uh, I, there is so much information that I would have loved to have included in the book that I couldn't fit in the main body of the text. And so some of it I was able to get into the end notes, but also on my website, which is just katherinegracekatz.com, I have some tidbits that I wasn't able to fit in the book. And uh, you can learn more information about the backgrounds of some of the, the figures in the story, some of whom uh, would love to have delved into further, like Alger Hiss, the double agent who sure. was operating as a, as he was a member of the State Department, who was one of the few who was there, but also operating as a double agent for the Soviet Union. And uh, so you can learn a little bit more about him on my website. And there are links to purchase the book on the website as well. Well, we'll, we'll put a, a link to that on our show notes page on, on americansecurityproject.org. Well, thanks for this, Catherine. And, and I should mention, you're also a, an ASP adjunct fellow. So it's, it's really a, a pleasure to have you here. And, and I encourage people to take a look at our website, too. And you can see some of your, your writing on other issues as well. Thanks for being with us, Catherine. Thank you so much. This is, I had a great time. Thank you to ASP for having me. I really enjoyed the conversation.